Today's show is brought to you by The Weekender from TripAdvisor. Do you love taking new weekend road trips? Do you also like knowing the stories behind the destinations you visit? Then you need The Weekender from TripAdvisor. The Weekender is a free newsletter curated by TripAdvisor writers who want you to road trip like a local across the New York region. Every issue is a prepackaged weekend trip that gives you the best local spots to eat, stay, and experience, told through the perspective of the locals. To get this free newsletter, sign up now at tripadvisor.com slash theweekender. That's tripadvisor.com slash theweekender. The Bowery Boys episode 347, Steam Heat. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we are cranking up the heat on the show. Oh, and not just any old kind of heat. We are cranking up the steam heat. In fact, Greg, do you want me to walk over right now to my radiator and fiddle with that little knob? You know, it's only like oh, 3,000 no. degrees. No, 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 no. Don't don't touch your radiator. In fact, nobody touch your radiator for a little <laughs> while right now. We'll get to some common apartment radiator questions, actually, later in the show. But first, we'll be telling the story of an innovative heating plan that was first introduced on a large urban scale here in New York City in the 1880s. A plan called district heating. District heating. It sounds pretty technical, but it's it's actually something that many of us who have worked in large office buildings downtown or in midtown experienced every day. And we'll be experiencing again when we get back into those office towers. Or those of us who have visited the Metropolitan Museum of Arts mm-hmm. or many other art museums or have had your clothes dry cleaned in Manhattan or yeah. dishes washed in a midtown restaurant. Yeah, many of those places and certainly most of the big office towers use steam for heating purposes as well as other purposes, including air conditioning. But and this is important to today's story, these buildings don't get their steam from their own boilers in their basements. The Empire State Building, for example, doesn't have a basement full of boilers. Their steam is provided by Con Edison, and they get it by by tapping into the city's steam service. Today we'll be looking at the debut of this system, and quite literally how it has shaped New York City's skyline. Because without this steam system, the skyline would look notably different. Hmm. And later in the show, I will be speaking with Frank Cuomo, who's the general manager of steam operation at Con Edison. And he'll help explain to us how the city produces steam today and how customers use it. And I hope actually that you're going to ask him about why the city places those orange and white chimneys in the middle of the street, you know, those kind of, <laughs> those sort of Seussian sort of uh, street decor that belches out steam. Oh, we'll get to those Seussical chimneys, Greg. Don't you worry. <laughs> so join us as we explore the steamy story of district heating in Manhattan. Yeah. I got steamy. I got steamy. I got I just had to get a little pajama game in there. But seriously, Greg, how do we even get started? I mean, the the, the subject could be a bit, shall we say, hazy for people. Um, <laughs> we're not just talking about heating in the city. We're talking more generally about steam. Yes, that steamy subject of district heating, or the idea of a central plant which distributes steam to customers through a series of pipes. In particular, we'll be speaking specifically about the New York Steam System, which is the largest in the United States, operated by Con Edison, which is the energy company that also supplies New York City with electricity and gas. 
Although, unlike those utilities, not every building in New York gets steam from the city. In fact, only buildings in Manhattan can tap into this system. Okay, so only buildings in Manhattan can tap into this steam system. Yes. Um, although buildings all over the city obviously use steam for their own purposes. They just, what, make their own? Yeah. Um, most buildings, though, actually have independent steam systems. Or in other words, a boiler in the basement mm-hmm. where heated water is turned into steam, and then that steam travels through pipes, you know, throughout the building, and then goes into individual rooms, most commonly via radiators. And I think many people listening are very familiar with the radiators that sit um, alongside a wall in one of their bedrooms or in their Mm -hmm. living room, and the fact that sometimes those are very hard, in fact, they're often Always very hard to control. Uh, (laughs) Once you get those things going, at least in my old apartment building, uh, you just couldn't seem to get the heat down. I mean, we're talking windows open during the winter. Yeah, I mean... But yes, very uh, effective. Very effective. Clang, clang, clang goes the radiator. (laughs) Well, meanwhile, um, places like New York University and Columbia University and many, many other places have independent self-contained steam systems. So smaller buildings in Manhattan may produce their own steam and and obviously buildings in other boroughs, but still in Manhattan itself, in the largest office towers, in the largest spaces, you know, like Grand Central Station and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, these giant buildings tap into this Con Edison-provided steam system, and millions of New Yorkers experience heat provided by the steam from this system every day. And just to be clear here, we're going to be talking mostly about heat, but the steam uh, from the steam system operates dishwashers, laundromats, uh, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, um, even cooling systems. Mm -hmm. Steam just has so many possibilities, doesn't it? I mean, it seems so advanced, you know, and, and yet also at the same time so primitive because it's... Well, it's boiling water. It's kind of always been around, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it connects us to like steam motors and, and, and to the Industrial Revolution. It is literally elemental uh, to, <laughs> you know, a mo- our modern way of life, this, this fundamental process of nature turning water into a gas. Now, since the late 18th century, steam has been used to generate power. The first Steam locomotives were developed in England in the early 19th century using the burning of coal or wood that would produce steam in a boiler system, powering a train's mechanics, and that would then, of course, propel it down the tracks. And the same principle then would be applied to developing the steamship, um, Uh which would be developed abroad as well, but perfected here by people like Robert Fulton. Yeah, I mean, thanks to Fulton, uh, you know, life in New York was already changing by the 1830s, thanks to steam. And steam as power, we'll come back into the story a little bit later, but it's a byproduct of steam that we'll be spending some time on, and that is steam creating heat. And the developments in steam heating are coming about here at a very important time as American cities were greatly expanding in size and population. So you just brought us up until the 1830s, but before then, the home was centered around the fireplace and the hearth, right? This was the center of the home and the heat production center of the home. Right. And then the smoke from all of that action would be belched out of the chimneys, um, which were right there. But there's so much burning here of wood. Um, it does seem like this would be kind of risky, uh, especially as the city was becoming more densely populated. Yeah. And to be honest, it actually wasn't even that effect- all that effective. I mean, you know. We love a good fireplace, but oh, yeah. uh, it's rather inadequate to heat you know, a, a large space. But during this period, Americans were, were soon entranced by another fuel source here, and that is coal, which became a cheaper alternative to wood. So while you would have wealthy <laughs> homes um, on Fifth Avenue that still had hearths and fireplaces, working-class homes tended then to be heated more with coal-burning stoves. 
But when does STEAM come into the picture here? Because STEAM, you know, seems to be perhaps a more efficient way of of getting heat around to multiple rooms. And it certainly would be. Uh, Believe it or not, STEAM as a heat source really began to be used on a large scale in the early 19th century. So really concurrent to all these other different heating methods. But they were usually kind of big one-off projects using a steam-generating boiler and a series of pipes traveling uh, through each room. But again, these would be very massive projects. So places like state houses, Mm -hmm. even the U.S. Capitol was warmed in this manner very early on in its creation. Eventually, over time, this technology would evolve so that the steam would enter into each room via a contraption of coiled pipes called a radiator. Oh. So rooms are heated by the hot water passing through these pipes, and if you just coil the the pipe and make it go up and down and up and down and up and down, you're basically creating more surface area, right, for the hot water to go through. Yeah, that's kind of why a radiator looks a little bit like an accordion, like this sort of compact set of pipes, but it's really to get the maximum amount of heat into a room. And obviously, this is a very common way for buildings to still be heated to this day, more or less, by producing their own steam in the basement and then sending it up Mm -hmm. to these radiators. Yes, uh, eventually it would be incredibly common, but for a while it was actually very costly. You know, I mean, the idea of installing pipes through a whole house... I mean, that is a big project. Yeah. By the, by the Civil War, you still mostly found this method of heating only in large buildings, extremely fancy hotels, and wealthy homes. And, you know, they would be quite dangerous, too, as you can obviously imagine. And it was only even until, like, the late 1890s that there was a so-called safer boiler that became available. Um, In fact, it was in 1891 that two New York investors named George Babcock and Stephen Wilcox revolutionized the industry by manufacturing smaller, affordable boilers that used lump coal. Thus, that could create steam heat that would suitably warm, you know, a three or four floor tenement. And that's all fine and dandy, you know, in terms of boiler capacity. Never yeah. thought we'd be talking about this. <laughs> um, if if you only had a three or four story building, but as buildings would get bigger, you couldn't make a boiler big enough to heat the whole place. Yeah, that's not quite going to work, right? So let's just take as an example here. In the year 1870, 150 years ago, the Equitable Building mm-hmm. was constructed um, at 120 Broadway. So it was 130 feet tall and seven floors. The biggest building in the city. Sometimes considered the very first skyscraper. Well, the sky was lower back then. <laughs> the sky, the sky was lower. The sky was lower and easier to scrape, but from a <laughs> seven-floor building. Well, actually, and then five years later, the New York Tribune Building um, had eighteen floors and was at two hundred and fifty feet tall. Mm-hmm. So, how would you get the steam then up to those upper floors? Well, as you mentioned, they would need their own boiler, right? And in fact, the Equitable had nine steel boilers Mm. and a hydraulic pumping engine in the basement. Now, I should also say that their elevators, and this, this was a revolutionary technology for a building of this type in 1870, but those elevators were also operated by steam. So they were using steam for a lot of things in this building. But they had to go this route. I mean, they couldn't put, you know, coal-burning stoves in each of these rooms. No, I mean, think of this massive chimney and uh, the amount of smoke that would be belching out of it, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. but fortunately, by the end of the decade, so that's 1870, well, by the end of the decade, the city would employ a new way of heating, a shared form of heating. This would involve treating steam as a public utility. And this was a new concept, the city providing some sort of shared need, some service, which would have been unheard of earlier in the century. Mm-hmm. But now, by the 1870s, the city was providing water. They were providing other utilities. Oh, yeah. I mean, as far back as the 1840s, right? That's when the city dug underground trenches for water and for sewage. You also had miles of gas pipes under the ground, which were serving both private homes and the lighting of city streets. So, you know, why couldn't you do the same for steam, right? Not only for heat, but for all sorts of purposes. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a growing necessity. 
Now, this, of course, would be known as district heating. To quote from the author Emmanuel Gallo, quote, District heating had several practical advantages and also influenced architecture in form and aesthetic terms. It allowed architects to get rid of chimney stacks and chimney pots on the roof, thus enabling the creation of new building forms. Was this concept of district heating invented in New York? Well, kind of. It was invented in New York State. Ah. In fact, on the very far west end of the state, in a town called Lockport, so just about 20 miles east of Niagara Falls. And this was in Lockport, you said? Lockport, New mm -hmm. York. Is there any connection then with the Erie Canal? I'm hearing lots of sort of canal-related terms. <laughs> well, yeah. In fact, Lockport is home of the Flight of the Five Locks, which was this staircase, very dramatic staircase lock that raised and lowered canal boats. Mm. And, and with the falls also being a place of power-generating innovation over the years, it's, it's not surprising that, to find that there were many, many inventors that flocked to this area here. Now, the inventor of district heating was a man named Birdsill Holly, who was born 200 years ago this year, 1820. Happy birthday, Birdsill. <laughs> now, he grew up in Seneca Falls, and he actually began inventing there, first with the invention of a water hydraulics system, which allowed firefighters to pump water from hydrants. Okay. And if that wasn't revolutionary enough, then he invented a steam fire engine, which soon became the model of the standard American fire engine. Wow. Okay, so this is all before 1850. <laughs> and this is before he's 30. Um, in 1851... No pressure. Actually, lots of pressure. <laughs> lots of pressure, Lots and actually. lots of pressure. <laughs> in, in 1851, he moved to Lockport, and then, you know... A little over a decade later, in 1863, he would build his new home, an innovative water and fire protection system. So he's already digging and laying pipes and, and working yeah. with pressurized water. Yeah. You know, just a few years later, as he's been thinking and looking at all the inefficiencies here in Lockport of having all these various buildings in town with their own separate heating systems, well, what if they were all just connected via underground pipes to one gigantic boiler, which was in a more distant, safer place? So in May of 1876, he placed a boiler about 500 feet away from his house. But it was connected with a very long pipe. This proved effective. He showed it off to the neighborhood, the town officials, and then very quickly, by January of 1877, a new corporation was formed to connect the entire town center of Lockport with miles of underground steam pipes. To quote from the Buffalo Morning Express, quote, it is proved that a district of four square miles can be economically warmed from one central point. The revolution to follow from the use of steam heating from a central point can now hardly be appreciated. And that is a fine achievement up there in Lockport. But meanwhile, back down in New York, I mean, this building boom that you had mentioned was really getting underway. Buildings were getting even taller. In fact, um, Mike Wallace and Edwin Burroughs in their book Gotham point out that by the end of the 19th century, more than 300 buildings would be constructed in Manhattan that were nine stories or taller. And as these buildings got taller, mm -hmm. having gigantic boilers in the basements of all these buildings, well, I mean, this just wasn't like a sustainable model. There would be a limit because the boilers could only get so large. And because you could only get so much coal to those boilers. You know, it, it prevented yes. some actual logistical challenges because especially we're talking about buildings in those tiny narrow streets downtown that were already packed with traffic and pedestrian traffic. How could they even get all the coal that they needed to those buildings? And, and where would they store it? You know, it would actually be very, very disruptive just in terms of coal delivery. So the city planners and entrepreneurs really started seriously considering the possibilities of delivering the steam by that same district heating system that old Birdsill Holly uh, had developed upstate. 
perchance, were there already, like, steam creation businesses in New York? Like, was it mm-hmm. possible to buy hot air from people? <laughs> um, don't we sell our hot air all the time? <laughs> this is a podcast full of it. <laughs> By 1880, actually, there were a couple of competing steam companies in town because in 1878, there was a man named Francis Spinola who was granted permission by city council or the common council, as it was called, to run steam pipes under the city streets to customers. And that right would be purchased the next year in 1879 by a wealthy businessman from Ohio named Wallace Andrews. And it would be Wallace Andrews then who would bring steam to New York City in a big way by forming the Steam Heating and Power Company of New York. A Gilded Age businessman from Ohio. Mm -hmm. Wallace had been a business associate of John D. Rockefeller back in Cleveland. Um, He had helped him start Standard Oil. He had served on Standard Oil's first board of directors. And it really sounds, you know, from what I've read, that he was quite a fellow. According to the book 50 Years of New York Steam Service, which was published in 1932, quote, He was above all else an achiever, a born pioneer, a perpetual striver for something new. Mr. Andrews was a handsome man of impressive bearing, emphasized by certain peculiarities of dress. His suits and fancy waistcoats were the envy of his rivals, and his tall, glistening beaver hats in winter and his equally high gray felts in summer were his special marks of sartorial distinction. Are you saying he's a steamy dandy? (laughs) And I should note that that description of him was published, that book was published by his own company 50 years later. So an objective source. (laughs) Very. Only the most objective. Um, Wallace had the money and the connections, and he brought on a prominent engineer named Charles Edward Emery. And according to this account in the 50 Years book, the two men traveled up to Lockport to check out Holly's new district heating system and then decided to license it from Holly for use down in Manhattan. What was the name of that company again? Their company was called the Steam Heating and Power Company of New York. Uh, but the, it, the story takes kind of a insidery business turn. Um, we don't want to get too deep into all of the competing steam rivals at the time. It gets, <laughs> it gets a little foggy in there. But there, there was another steam company called the New York Steam Company that got an even bigger license, a bigger franchise from the city. And so Wallace Andrews then took a controlling share of that company, took it over, and then merged it into his other company, retaining the name of the New York Steam Company, which then by the end of 1880 had this big authority, this broad authority that had been granted by the city to really dig away and lay steam pipes wherever they wanted to in Manhattan. The city granted them, and I quote, the right to lay mains and pipes in any and all the streets, avenues, lanes, alleys, squares, highways, and public places in the city of New York. And it goes on and on and on. They could basically dig up whatever they wanted. Hmm. And so they started digging then and laying their pipes the next year in 1881. So here, 1881... Mm-hmm. This just seems like it's a, going to be a little bit of a, a messy situation. The city is already growing. There's so much construction. Mm-hmm. And here you have this company ripping up the streets to embed cast iron steam pipes under the roads. Sounds like a possible fiasco. Oh, and it wasn't just steam pipes that were being laid, but electric cables as well. Because Thomas Edison who was also given the right to dig up the streets himself, would open his first electric plant just a few blocks away on Pearl Street in 1882. And in fact, Charles Emery from the steam company, the engineer, would sometimes even meet Thomas Edison underground as they were both <laughs> late at night inspecting their pipes and cables. Um, Fancy next- meeting you here. They would actually compare pipes and, and talk about insulation by gaslight underground i mean this sounds kind of fun being in the trenches late night in new york oh yeah but the big picture here is that by 1881 1882 downtown all the construction all the things being laid in the streets downtown was a hot mess and this made certain newspapers pretty cranky 
I found a clip in the New York Sun uh, printed on March 6, 1882, about all the heating and power company pipes and wires that had been laid the previous year. They wrote, The steam companies and electric companies laid eight miles of pipes in 1881, and the gas companies 14 and a half miles of gas mains. These underground structures are increasingly so enormous that in many places a complete rearrangement of those already placed will become necessary for the additional ones. And unfortunately, the greatest accumulation occurs in the most populous and most frequented streets, where interference with the pavement is most objectionable. In this respect, New York is like London. Uh, by the way, how did this even work? Where was the steam company located exactly? And where were, where were the boilers that were creating the steam? Well, the offices of the New York Steam Company were on Cortland Street uh, between Church and Broadway. Today, just a block or a block and a half east of the World Trade Center. But the steam generating plant, uh, which contained a whopping 48 boilers, Greg, on four floors, <laughs> was located just west of the office between Greenwich and Washington on Cortland, which is the site of today's World Trade Center. Oh, wow. And when did it start operation? On March 3rd, 1882, this new steam company provided steam to its first customer in this district heating plan, the nine-story United Bank building, which was home of the First National Bank of the city of New York, which was located at 88 Broadway at Wall Street, just across from Trinity Church. So that building, that new building, was now getting its steam to serve its radiators, but also to power its two elevators from a steam-generating plant that was located seven blocks away. And within months, dozens more buildings in the area would also tap into the steam system. Clients like the the 10-story Mutual Union Telegraph Company building at 135 Broadway and the old U.S. Post Office building, which was on Park Row, just south of City Hall. And this would keep growing. Within four years, in 1886, the company would have five miles of pipes running under the streets and an impressive 350 customers each of them buildings, using their steam services. And all of that steam that all of these buildings are using is being generated from that same steam plant. Well, by 1886, um, the company would construct another generating plant uptown um, at Madison and 58th Street. That plant was to service buildings in Midtown, mostly in the 50s and 60s, between Madison and 5th Avenue. Well, this sounds like they're aiming for more swanky addresses um, by building that particular site. Yeah, they were betting um, on a new market for their steam power, the luxurious residences and the mansions of Gilded Age New York here in Midtown. The steam company's 50 years book that I mentioned mm -hmm. reported that, quote, the announcement that the service had been extended received a warm welcome from fashionable uptown residents, especially women, who saw in it the abolishment of smoke, soot, ashes, dust, and dirt, not to mention noise and fire hazards. And, you know, several then socially prominent families adopted steam, like Henry Flagler at 685 Fifth Avenue. Seth Lowe signed on, J.D. Rockefeller himself um, signed on. He even provided a testimonial for the steam heating company to be used in advertisements. That's a pretty big endorsement for any product mm -hmm. to get, like, you know, Rockefeller on the record uh, supporting something. Why would they need uh, such high-profile endorsements? Well, it was still a new technology, and the, the company had launched a sort of PR campaign after that devastating blizzard of 1888, which had shut down the city for three days in March of that year. But we should note, the steam power, even during the coldest days of that blizzard, the steam power never stopped, and it proved itself to be very reliable. It also proved, because during that emergency, they had to figure out ways to truck the coal over to that Madison Avenue plant, it proved to them the importance of constructing power plants along water sources, along the rivers. So in 1896, the company opened a new plant at 59th Street and the East River, and they shut down that old Madison Avenue plant. We'll get to New York and steam in the 20th century after this. 
On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by The Weekender from TripAdvisor. Did you know that Mystic, Connecticut is now a food scene with some of the best farm-to-table restaurants in the Northeast? This is just one of the things that I learned while reading TripAdvisor's new newsletter, The Weekender. The Weekender from TripAdvisor is a free newsletter that recommends the best weekend getaways in the New York region. Discover the best places to eat, sleep, and experience the local sites and culture, from the best bakery in the Bronx to the most Instagrammable hotels in the Catskills. Now, I subscribe to The Weekender, and what I like about it is the way that they feature the stories of local residents, you know, so you can really, you know, see the town from like a different perspective, and you can see it from, you know, the, the folks who live there. Each issue of The Weekender is filled with amazing recommendations, cultural facts, and fascinating stories. And whenever you decide to start traveling again, I think that you'll love it as much as we do. And quite honestly, I just read it to dream about traveling because I haven't traveled in a while. So I'm just sort of like planning all these things in my head, like making a checklist because of The Weekender. So you can actually sign up for free at tripadvisor.com slash theweekender. That's tripadvisor.com slash theweekender. And now, back to the show. So this new Steam system has proved to be a success. And really just in time, right? That's right. It started in 1882. And just in time, because starting in the 1890s, the scale of office buildings downtown grows dramatically, okay? So in 1890, Joseph Pulitzer constructs his office for the New York world at 309 feet. That's not counting the massive antenna on top of the building. That was the tallest building in the world. And then that was supplanted in 1894 by the Manhattan Life Insurance Building at 348 feet. Then the Park Row Building in 1899 at 399 feet, and all of those buildings were located along Park Row, 
were all of these new skyscrapers connected to the new Steam system? Uh, no, not all skyscrapers, actually. It really depended on a lot of different factors. But one of those was an accident of geography, right? So, you know, the original steam source was down there on Cortland Street. But, you know, as the years would progress, several would be built along the East River waterfront. But access was actually limited. And some architects just preferred having an independent system Because hooking up to the steam system, I mean, with these giant pipes, was kind of a major ordeal, right? They'd have to literally lay new pipe to get to your building. It wasn't as flexible as just getting some new electrical wires or telephone cables strung in through the window. Oh, no, not at all. In fact, you'd get situations like that in Madison Square Park, where you had the uh, Metropolitan Life Tower which was built there in the beginning of the 20th century. They were a customer of Steam Heat, but their neighbor, the Flatiron Building, on the other side of the park, well, they actually had their own boiler steam system. And probably lots of coal out the back door. (laughs) Yes, unfortunately so. Now, as we head here into the 1920s, you'll find that steam, the steam system is actually becoming quite desirable and even seen a little bit as a luxury. You'll find buildings advertising their use of the city's steam system as being a modern futuristic feature of the skyscraper age in midtown Manhattan. You know, there is almost something futuristic about Art Deco skyscrapers being connected to a city steam system, free from those nasty boilers. You had glamorous hotels like the New Yorker, the Hotel Pierre, the Essex House. They were all signed on for steam service. You know, Midtown's most famous skyscrapers became customers. Do you have a list of all the buildings that hooked up to the steam system? I do. Okay. uh, Did that include the Chrysler Building? Yes. The Empire State? Yes. The Daily News Building? Correct. Grand Central Station? Yes. The New York Times building at Times Square? It did. And in fact, by the way, this allowed newspapers to free up their subterranean space here, you know, going with steam heat, so they could have more room for printing and archives, you know, you name it. For the presses. Yes. Which could also be powered by steam. By steam. And speaking of basements and uh, arcaded underground spaces, Mm -hmm. what about Rockefeller Center? Steam heat. Yes. Uh, Actually, very notably so. I mean, can you imagine the boilers you would have had to build to keep 30 rock heated and powered up here? According to early Rockefeller Center architect Harvey Wiley Corbett, quote, Today, we the collective we, we are concentrating our new fireplaces at a few centrally situated points in the city where steam is made very much as electricity is made, unquote. So rockets kept warm and probably lifted <laughs> on, on hydraulic devices powered by steam. Uh, yes. As well as Jenna over at 30 Rock uh, <laughs> kept warm in her dressing room. SNL. Um, But by placing the responsibility of heating on an underground system, this allowed for a clean, unencumbered skyline. The classic romantic New York skyline derives from its noticeable lack of ugly plumes of smoke and exhaust. And given the fact that New York would have such a smog problem and pollution problem later, imagine how much worse it could have gotten if we had had all of those chimneys exhausting all that nastiness. Yes, I mean, thank goodness those never existed. By 1932, New York would have the largest steam distribution system in the world, with three quarters of the buildings in Midtown clients of the New York Steam Corporation, which was their new name by this point. Mm-hmm. You know, C- City Steam would be so linked with the rise of skyscrapers and apartment towers and hotels that it essentially made the system a Manhattan-only service, right? Because by this time, only downtown Brooklyn would even have buildings of remotely comparable height, but not enough to envision an expensive underground steam service here. And all of this is happening, meanwhile, 
at the same time that the, that the city was also using all of those other utilities as well, the gas and electric. The gas, which was overseen by Consolidated Gas Company, and the electric, by this time, by Edison Electric. But by 1936, when it became kind of obvious that electricity was the more prominent utility of the two, well, these two companies merged and became... Consolidated Edison, or Con Ed. Yes, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, which then absorbed you know, all sorts of smaller, smaller power, gas, electricity, steam, all sorts of different like smaller companies. It was then that the steam system came under the auspices of Con Ed, a system that by 1936 included 65 miles of main and six generating units serving 2,500 buildings. So how then does Con Edison today run the city's steam service? For that, Greg, I called up Frank Cuomo, who's the general manager of steam operations at Con Edison. Thank you, Frank, for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Um, could, could we start by just talking about how big the city's steam system is today? Just can you put it in context for us? Uh, sure. There's a lot of different ways to put it in context. The, the most basic way to put it in context is uh, the distance. So it's about 106 miles of steam pipe underneath the ground in the streets of Manhattan. And that starts down at the battery, uh, and it extends on the west side of Manhattan to 96th Street and on the east side of Manhattan to 89th Street. Uh, so it covers a really vast geographic area. So it's going up and down several times, many different avenues. Correct, yeah. It's, it's on the, all the major avenues, or most of the major avenues, but primarily the two main load areas that we service are the downtown area and the midtown area. Those are the largest areas of infrastructure. And, and that's because most of your customers are very large office towers or residential towers. Correct. That's the primary customer for a uh, for Con Ed Steam Service. They, they are the customer profile that uh, this business attracts uh, due to their size. And about how many buildings are actually serviced by your steam heat? So approximately 1,600 customers, uh, and each customer is a building. So, okay. for example, Empire State Building is one, one customer for us. So is there any way to kind of understand about how many people experience steam heat in the city? Sure. So out of all our customers, 1,600, it equates to approximately 700 million square feet of New York City real estate. And we equate that to about 3 million people. And the reason why we say 3 million people uh, is because it's, it's not really a finite number. You know, Grand Central Station is one of our customers. You know, and how to estimate how many people are in there or how many people <laughs> go through there a day is, is tough. Yeah. Uh, same thing with Madison Square Garden. Depends on the event. So what we estimate conservatively is about three million people are impacted by our service each day. Are impacted. It's like how many people in New York experience steam heating? Yep, that, about, that's our number. Three million is our estimate. Three million a day. Yes. And what is it about the steam service today that really is attractive to these people who sign on? Why are they signing up for it? So it's very interesting. I mean, uh, you know, you, I know you guys dove into the history. You know, we've been in operation for, it's going to be 139 years in March. Mm -hmm. The value that the system provides is that it provides a finished product to our customers. They can use it for a variety of uses, but primarily the, the three top are heating, domestic hot water production, mm -hmm. and air conditioning. But we have a lot of customers that use it for special uses. We have a, a cheese maker mm -hmm. that uses it to in their cheese production. Uh, museums use it to keep humidity levels at certain levels uh, to preserve their artwork. We have hospitals that clean their instruments. So a wide variety of uses amongst our customer base. And the, the real value here is that they can get that finished product without having to use up valuable real estate within their basements. Right. So that means that there's more space for them to rent out or to use for other attractive purposes, like a, a gym down there or a pool or storage or whatever they want to do. Correct. You would be surprised on the value of a single parking space in Manhattan, how much value that could open up for a building <laughs> uh, each year. Yeah. Um, so usually, typically, a steam meter station will take about a third of the space of a traditional boiler plant mm -hmm. uh, in a basement. So that real estate value is captured right away. That's one of the main benefits. Uh, but the simplicity of the system is also another benefit that our customers uh, realize. Yeah, so, so staffing overhead is lowered as well 
you, you don't need correct. as many people to run and maintain the boilers. That's correct, because there's very little maintenance associated with it, because you're, we're taking the majority of the equipment that you would need out of the customer's basements, and our production facilities are, are the ones that produce and, and make the product and deliver it. Yeah. And in terms of where you're getting the steam from, you have various steam production facilities around the city. Correct. Yes, we, we have one. Uh, we have a single one on the on the west side, and then we have four additional on the east side. So it's five in total. One of them is actually located in Brooklyn. It's a contracted uh, facility, and that steam gets uh, routed through a, a tunnel into Manhattan. But the real benefit on the production side for us is, or for our customers as well, is that 60% of our steam is co-generated. So we produce electricity and steam simultaneously uh, in the most efficient manner possible. And when you say co-generated, that's, that means that you're generating at the same time that you're making electricity, you're also capturing the steam from that process? Correct. So we're, capture, we're making electricity and we are capturing the waste exhaust gases from that process and creating steam with it. Uh, so you're, you're recapturing a lot of that waste energy and basically you're getting two products out of one. Yeah. And at those steam production facilities that we go by, you know, we might be driving by or cycling by um, and we see those giant chimneys, right? I mean, what's happening inside there? Those are giant boilers? So it depends on the location you're looking at. The, the most prominent one that you will probably driven by a number of times if you're on the FDR drive, uh, our East River facility uh, is around 14th Street. Yeah, it, sure. It's right on the FDR. So it does have a number of stacks that come off the top. The stacks, what comes out of the stacks are the waste product from that combustion process to make electricity and steam. And you're using then obviously the city's water. You're using the water to in this production process. That's correct. So we, we get city water. We have a couple of different city water feeds uh, that goes right into our production process. It gets treated. We have a, a full chemical treatment system and a, uh, a filtration system. Mm-hmm. And that goes into our boiler system or it goes into our cogen system depending on where you are and then that gets heated up to a certain level using natural gas primarily and then when it when the steam reaches a certain pressure and temperature it gets distributed into the grid and at what temperature is the steam passing through uh, approximately 380 degrees is, is the average temperature that you could expect uh, the steam to be traveling but when it gets into, say, the basement or sub-basement, wherever it's going in, in a structure, does it need to be sort of dialed back, and does the temperature need to be lowered? So it's, a, it's more the pressure than the temperature. So depending on the customer and what they use the steam for, the majority of our customers take the 125-pound pressure that we produce, mm-hmm. and they knock it back uh, to something less, depending on what their needs are. Uh, but there are customers that use our steam for cooling, and they use... For the cooling application, you need the full 120 pounds to run uh, a cooling plant. And, and in the most basic of terms, can you sort of explain in a sentence or two how steam, which is super hot, 300 degrees, could produce air conditioning? It is, that is a very counterintuitive question. <laughs> when I first joined the steam organization, it baffled me on how something that's 380 degrees could cool off an entire building yeah. like our headquarters at Fort Irving Place. However, it's actually quite simple. Uh, if you think about a, an analogy of your refrigerator, mm-hmm. so your refrigerator cools off the space inside of it. There's a compressor on the bottom, and that noise every now and then you hear the humming. Mm-hmm. That is the compressor circulating refrigerant. So all the steam does, instead of an electric motor turning that compressor, the steam turns a turbine, which turns a compressor and moves the refrigerant around. Ah, so steam is not cooling the air. Steam is powering the engine, if you will, that that cools the air. That is correct. It's initiating and and sustaining the refrigeration cycle for the building. So cool. And could you help put put this into context, just how large New York's steam system is compared to other cities in the world? Sure. So the Condit steam system is the largest in the U.S. And if you added up the next five systems, we would still be larger than that. Wow. Uh, However, if you look in the world, we are the ninth largest in the world. Uh, If you look at it from a distribution perspective, from a length of pipe perspective, St. Petersburg and Moscow are the top two systems. Uh, We come in ninth as far as a distance perspective. 
and I, I'm also fascinated by the fact that you know that the steam system is a is a great choice for certain buildings, often really large ones, um, but yet so many buildings in New York still produce their own steam. I'm thinking of my old uh, four story tenement on the Lower East Side, um, where when the temperature got to a certain point outside, you know, all of a sudden you'd start to hear that coming over from the radiator and they had turned on the boiler downstairs. What goes into sort of the thought process for landlords about whether or not to tap into the steam system? So there's really an economies of scale with this. A lot of times for smaller buildings, it does not make sense, right? And in some cases, the boiler may be small enough and expensive enough and the real estate that it takes up is small enough that it doesn't really make sense to go with steam service. Sometimes it makes sense to purchase gas service and and produce your own, especially if it's for a small amount. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's say for a larger building or a campus or a large development, that's when you start your boiler sizes start increasing. The size of that real estate that you have to dedicate starts increasing significantly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And moreover, Sometimes if you don't go with a steam distribution system, if you go with a hot water distribution system, you have to pump that water around. With steam, it naturally moves throughout the pipe based upon the pressure. Mm -hmm. So there's no pumping, there's no electric power or energy being put into it to move it around your building. So if you think about a high-rise, if you want to get energy to the top floors, you want to go with high-pressure steam so you can get that energy all the way up without having to put in motors or pumps to get it there. And does that help explain at all, or is this related to the phenomenon uh, known as steam hammer? The noise that I used to occasionally hear and that I'm sure our listeners will be familiar with, the, the tapping or the banging on the pipes that we sometimes hear? Sure. Uh, yeah, it's actually, uh, we, we refer to it as water hammer. So there are two... Water hammer. Yeah. There are two main types uh, of water hammer that we concern ourselves with. Uh, one of them is a, called a slug type. It's a more common one, and I think the one that you're referring to that occurs when the heating system first starts up in a small building and you hear kind of clicking or tapping, mm-hmm. uh, those are really the water droplets that remain in the system that are being pushed through and they're kind of banging on the ends of the pipe. For a small, low-pressure system, it, it's nothing more than a nuisance uh, or a noise issue. Uh, the more severe case of water hammer is when there is a significant amount of cold water or condensate in a steam pipe uh, and the steam mixes with it in an uncontrolled manner that causes a collapse of the steam bubble creates almost a vacuum and the water kind of collapses on itself immediately and causes a pressure pulse that could be uh, sizable depending on the situation and the size of the pipe oh and so i i guess related to that then i mean steam overall has been throughout new york's history pretty reliable and and, and quite safe although there have been a few notable instances of steam pipe explosions that have taken place, including um, as recently in 2018 in the Flatiron District um, when uh, dozens of buildings had to be evacuated. I'm just curious, is that what has caused, is that kind of build up what has caused uh, many of those explosions? Yeah, so in, in our recent history, uh, and as you noted, 138 years, you know, a few notable events, but mm-hmm. to your point, the, the notable events are associated with Waterhammer. Each of them is unique. Uh, the latest one, the uh, flat iron that happened in July 2018, that was a, a water hammer caused by external water coming in contact with our pipe. Uh, I'm not going to get too much into the details there because the, the report is with the commission and not 100% finalized. Ah, okay. um, but with each one of these, we learn and we implement changes to prevent this or mitigate that risk from happening in the future. So even though the report's not finalized uh, right now for the Flatiron event, within six months we implemented changes from what we've learned in the investigation that continue to make our system, as far as technology-wise, we are probably one of the more advanced steam systems in the world as far as the technology we've incorporated into our, the control and monitoring of the system. And I guess if we're talking about the water somehow touching the steam system or the steam pipes that are far underground... Um, we can't we can't talk about steam. I can't let you go without first asking about those iconic white and orange uh, steam chimneys that we see occasionally in the middle of high trafficked avenues and streets, popping right out of the street. I guess out of the manholes, right? What what is the yep. purpose of those chimneys that are belching out that that steam? So our, our steam stacks are famous and infamous, <laughs> uh, iconic. Yeah, they are iconic. And, and they're a major part of the New York City culture. 
you will see them in multiple movies, multiple productions. Sure. We get calls. We get calls often uh, for movie producers that want to buy one or, or rent one from <laughs> us or ask us to set one up. Um, Can you rent one <laughs> for a party? No, no, we, we, we don't. We don't allow that. We usually we usually tell them to just if they can reproduce it on their own, <laughs> and they usually do that. But to answer your question, so when there is a stack, an orange and white steam stack in the street, that is there for a number of reasons. But mostly, it's there for safety. There's a, a situation. There is a steam leak or a, a situation where steam vapor is emanating from the street. We want to make sure that that is directed above the flow of traffic, away from pedestrians. That is the main function of the stack. And it is there on a temporary basis. It is there until we can organize a time when we can shut down that specific section of the system to repair the leak or alleviate the condition that is causing that vapor to come up from the street. And the vapor is coming up usually through a manhole that would be used to access the pipes in the first place? That's correct. So right now we have almost 4,000 manholes around the city just for the steam system alone. Wow. And uh, typically if we have a leak, it will travel down the, the piping and find a, a manhole and, and come out through the street through there. It, it's, it happens, but it, it's more rare that um, a, a leak will be so severe that it'll, it'll kind of cut its own hole through the street. Hmm. Uh, usually it finds a path of least resistance, and that's usually one of these manholes. So when we see those chimneys, those steam stacks, they're just there. We should thank them. They're there to keep us safe. Correct. They are there for pedestrian safety as well as to keep the steam out of the path of vehicles driving so they have a clear uh, line of vision to where they're driving. So, Frank, in today's show, you know, we really covered the history of the steam system and where it's been but where do you think it's going? Um, what do you think is the future of New York's steam system? That's a good question. So over its 138 years of operation, the Con Edison steam system has evolved from using coal to heavy fuel oil to natural gas. Mm -hmm. We're working to further improve our environmental rating by investigating renewable fuels, efficiency opportunities, and working with our customers so that they use our product in a, a smarter way. You know, we're really not 100% sure what the fuel of the future will be, but I can guarantee you that our system will be using it to keep New York City running. And using whatever that future fuel is to keep making steam. That's correct. Well, Frank Cuomo, thank you so much for being on the Bowery Boys and for taking the time to explain the city's modern steam system to us. Thanks so much. It is our pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that interview was fascinating, and it's so good to know that those chimneys are actually there to keep New Yorkers safe. Yeah. For more on this subject and a lot of fascinating images, especially some 19th century images of steam inventions, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where on top of stories related to this podcast, there will be other stories, a lot of seasonal stories on New York City and the holiday season. You'll also find us um, on social media at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. A huge thank you to our patrons who steam may power much of New York, but our patrons power the Bowery Boys. We could not make the show without you. Um, thank you for joining us at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. It's because of your small monthly contributions that Greg and I are able to produce a new Bowery Boys episode every two weeks. We really couldn't do the show without you. So check out Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. And we have a special treat for all those who support us there. And for those who sign up at any level, next week, we will be dropping a Patreon-only show, a Bowery Boys holiday spectacular. Uh, for your ears. <laughs> you know, usually around this time, we get to do a holiday party. Um, mm -hmm. For those who support us on Patreon who live in New York, and of course, we're not able to do that. So we're going to have a little special holiday show just for patrons, and it's going to include all sorts of fun little goodies, greatest holiday moments in our lives, mm -hmm. maybe some some like rumination of this year gone by, perhaps. Yeah, Normally, we hold that party, Greg, as you said, at a 
bar. Imagine this, a bar in a small room in the back of a bar in the village. And, <laughs> you know, here's to holding it again in a small room in the back of a bar in the village in 2021, listener. Yes. We're going to make it there. <laughs> and on that show, ladies and gentlemen, you'll get to hear the story about the time that Tom and I performed on a lofty cabaret stage with Eartha Kitt. That's right, well, Santa Baby. Yeah, technically, that's true, but it's more like Eartha Kitt performed on us. <laughs> but so, we'll tell so, that story in the Patreon Extra. Exclusive. So that's patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. <laughs> You can get in the holiday mood as well by checking out BoweryBoysWalks.com. We have a number of great new tours, including Gay Bars That Are Gone, a tour of the East Village in the later half of the 20th century, and of course, Holidays in Old New York. That, along with the Greenwich Village tour, Fifth Avenue Mansions tour, it's all over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. And by the way, if you don't know what to give somebody for the holidays, how about a Bowery Boys Walks gift card? Pick up yours over BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. 